Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. All right, so here's the premise for today. Um, There's an author named N.T. Wright, and he says this. He says, men and women are constituted to worship some absolute power. And if they do not worship the true and real power behind the universe, they will construct a God for themselves and give allegiance to that. Uh, This is black and white. Um, There is no neutral. Everybody worships something. Even those who say they don't believe in anything, they're worshiping the unbelief of something. Everybody worships something. It's either the God in whose image we've all been made, or we are deceived by evil, and we create gods of ourselves, for ourselves. The ironic thing is that these gods are no more powerful or righteous than we are because they've been made in our image, by us. And they are the fruit of everything that opposes God. So, that's where we're starting. Uh, Last week, we read Revelation 13, and we were introduced to two beasts, and we heard that they are tools used by the dragon to attack Jesus by going after his people. If you missed last week, and I would imagine, like, if you're new and you're just walking into this, this is all very weird. So, everything's online. You can go watch the sermons. We have a podcast that has all these sermons uh, through the series in Revelation, so you can get caught up. And especially last week, uh, because last week and this week, they really are two parts of one sermon. So before we read chapter 13 again, and today we're going to read the whole over-the-top dramatic scene, I just want to offer a couple reminders. Remember, Revelation doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. The literature we're reading uses images and colors and numbers to represent something else. A dragon is not an actual dragon. It's a force that stands opposed to God, and because it does that, it's beastly in nature. And that is set in opposition to a lamb, which isn't an actual lamb. It's the sign of strength shown through Jesus who took suffering upon himself. Rather than being a dragon that inflicts suffering upon others, the lamb takes suffering Upon himself. It's the power of the crucified and resurrected Christ. So let's read Revelation 13 in all of its glory and we'll see what we can do with this. All right, it says The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave his, the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beasts seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. 
it opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. And because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their forehead so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and that number is 666. As strange, as odd as it is, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, today we need your guidance, we need your comfort, we need your peace. We also need you to poke us in the side a little bit. Challenge us in a way that only you can, in a comforting and loving way, to recognize where we may be giving our allegiance, where we may be directing our true worship. Help us to see that so that we can be your church. Remembering, like Beth said, that you are the king and we are your people. And at the end of the day, that is all that matters. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Uh, If you missed last week, last week we talked about the mark of the beast and it's number 666. So you can go listen to that online. I also told you last week that Revelation 13, part of the reason it's written is to help us understand why it's so difficult to remain loyal to Jesus in the midst of a world that is opposed to him. Remember, Revelation isn't about the end of the world. It's about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in the midst of a world that's coming to its end. So we know the dragon, evil, is trying to do everything in its power to keep us from being obedient to Jesus, to keep us from worshiping the one true God. And the most effective way to do that is to give us something else to worship. So the question for us to wrestle with today is what counterfeit gods are we being offered? And the reality is there's, there's many. Uh, but today we're going to focus on two, and it's the nature of these two beasts that we find in chapter 13. This beast from the sea and this beast from the earth. We need to be able to recognize these beasts in particular so that we can resist them. That's the reason this chapter was written. Now, if you remember from last week, We said that the dragon and the two beasts, it's a mimic, it's an ape, it's an imposter. 
It's mimicking the Holy Trinity. It's forming an unholy trinity, and it tries to deceive us by pretending to be God. So we said last week that evil is not always obviously evil. Sometimes it can look like a partial good, and sometimes it's presented as a partial truth. The dragon mimics the description of God the Father, and the beast of the sea mimics the description of Jesus the Lamb, who we know, as Beth said, is the King of Kings. And that's the first hint that helps us understand what the beast of the sea represents. Now to do this, we need to go back to the first century for just a minute. I want you to imagine that you're a regular man or woman, you're a follower of Jesus, and you're living either in Israel or you're living in what is now modern day Turkey. That's where the seven churches were located, the churches that John addressed the revelation to. Whether you're in Turkey or in Israel, it's from across the sea that Rome rules the world as you know it. Now, some would argue that Rome's purpose was to bring peace and prosperity, to further develop this Greek idea of democracy. Rome may have started with a righteous purpose. Most democratic-minded governments do. But that is not how it ended. Julius Caesar, he died on March 15th, 44 B.C., And his reign marked a transition from what was the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. And that was only further enforced when his heir, Octavian, took his place as the new Caesar. And that established a family line of Caesars that would continue until a man named Nero violently killed pretty much everyone, even had his own mother killed, and took the throne almost 100 years later. Now, between the rule of Julius Caesar and Nero, this title Caesar had been transformed from a seat of human power and authority into a divine office. From their perspective, Caesar had become a god. Some Caesars along the way accepted this, some rejected it. Nero loved it. He relished in it. And it actually drove him crazy. In the meantime, he used this godly authority in incredibly beastly ways. He was horrible. But it was actually his descendant Domitian who took emperor worship to a whole new level. He ruled the Roman Empire at the end of the first century, the time that many believe John received and wrote the Revelation. And he was not only brutal and unrelenting in his persecution of Jews and Christians. Nero was unpredictable. Domitian was absolutely predictable. If you were a Jew or a Christian, you're on the chopping block. You're done. He even demanded that all people in the empire refer to him as Dominus et Deus, which means my Lord and God. He changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire. By the time of Domitian's rule, Emperor worship and worship of the state was simply a way of life for everybody who was a subject to Roman rule. So do you see the picture? This beast coming from the sea had convinced the world that it was the savior. That peace and prosperity could only be achieved if you were strictly obedient to and even worship Rome and her emperors. If you want to participate in this peace and prosperity, get on your knees and worship. For those who won't, for those who won't bow down, for those who wouldn't participate in the emperor cult, 
It wasn't just difficult to participate in the marketplace. It wasn't just difficult to find your way in the world. Your very life was on the line. So this is clearly, without a doubt, the context in which John presents this beast of the sea, this tool used by evil in history to give people something other than the one true God to worship and obey. This beast from the sea was not an actual beast. It is political power on earth when it is used to deceive and draw obedience and worship away from God. You see, the truth is political power doesn't always intend to become a beast. They often start with righteous purpose, but the desire for power and control and then for more power and more control, that turns political powers into beasts. You've heard it said that power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, the biblical truth is that power that is no longer exercised under the authority of God, it eventually seeks to become a God. And when the state seeks to be God, it doesn't become divine. It becomes demonic. So that's the beast from the sea. It represents oppressive and ungodly political power. This beast from the earth, it represents another power that has also been used throughout history to control and manipulate people. It's the third person of the unholy trinity. The beast of the earth mimics the work of the Holy Spirit. It acts as a witness, a false prophet, a voice that calls people to worship the beast of the sea and the dragon. This beast from the earth, if the beast of the sea is ungodly political power, the beast of the earth represents ungodly religious power. A religious power that directs people to worship the state, ultimately to live as subjects to the power of evil in the world. And this beast serves a really important purpose because political power can't exist on its own, especially when it moves out from under the authority of God. It needs breath, it needs life, it needs inspiration, a spirit. It needs to become a movement among the people. And that's what the second beast provides. By mimicking the Holy Spirit, it's providing breath and inspiration. It's providing life. It's a spirit guiding people to accept the lie that human authority, that political power, is the only true savior. And this beast makes life very difficult for anyone who refuses to bow down to the first. We're told that it works signs and wonders, that it did things that mimicked the power of God displayed in the Old Testament through prophets like Elijah and Moses. It even does things that mimic signs and wonders that Jesus did in the Gospels. Signs and wonders performed by the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament. But there's a way to tell the difference. The Holy Spirit indwells and transforms us. Its imposter manipulates and consumes us. You see, when the state seeks to become God, it doesn't become divine, it becomes demonic. And when any religious authority unites with that state, it is a false prophet. Because its mission becomes turning people to idolatry, which leads to suffering and chaos. 
Now, I wish I could tell you that this is just about pagan religion, but it's not. This sad truth has been seen in the history of both the Jewish people and the Christian church. In the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, which we saw like, I don't know, what, two years ago when we first started the series? In the letters to those churches, John warns three of the seven churches not to listen to the teachings of their own church. He says, reject it. Because those three churches were teaching a common heresy. Now, at first, I think they were doing it on behalf of their people. It was becoming really hard to resist the state. It was costing some of them their lives. But they made a compromise. And they taught that you could be both a disciple of Jesus and a disciple of Rome. You could worship God and you could worship Caesar. And because of that, Jesus said, if you don't repent and return, I will remove the very thing that makes you my church. You will no longer be my church. That compromise caused those churches to become beasts because they were teaching Christians to worship and obey the state. See, no matter what name you put on the sign in front of your building, regardless of whether there's a cross at the top of your steeple, that is heresy and it's idolatry. And it's a sign that the beast of the earth and not the Holy Spirit is what is breathing life into that church. There's one little detail in the reading that we haven't discussed. It comes from verse three. It says, uh, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but that fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. There were rumors at the time that Nero died that he had come back to life, that he'd either faked his death and gone on to the east to get an army to come back and finally conquer Rome, or that he had actually died and come back to life. There were imposters that were coming into Rome saying that they were the resurrected Nero. In the span of one year, there were three emperors. It was a year of chaos until finally Vespasian took over and restored the brutal rule of Rome as it was. But here's the point. It really has nothing to do with Nero. That rumor, that idea, John's using it to teach a deeper truth. That this beast is resilient. And that every time we think it's been conquered, it rears its ugly head again. In modern history, we've seen this play out. Nazism is defeated and it's replaced by communism. Communism defeated, replaced by nationalism. The reality is throughout history over and over again, until Jesus returns, some new ism will always rise to fill the void of the one that's been defeated. And that's why John says it is so hard to overcome the deception of this beast because it seems like it's never gonna go away. And if it's never gonna go away, we might as well accept that this is a beast that we can't overcome, that this is the best we can do. So we might as well just accept the inevitable and declare allegiance to it. Maybe even worship it if that's what it takes, if that's what keeps me alive, if that's what lets me at least put a little bread on the table. I'll worship it if I can at least eke out some type of existence here on earth. That's what John is warning us against. That's why it's so hard to be a disciple of Jesus in the midst of a world that has turned away from him. Now, here's the deal. Um, I really believe, I mean, this is happening all throughout history. Every Christian has faced this, but I believe that we are also watching this play out 
right now in very real and tangible ways. We are watching the Holy Trinity at work. And in our culture right now, it is in fine form. You see, I'm convinced that there is enough evidence to show that we now have a new cultural religion. That as a culture, we have become more devoted to the doctrine of partisan politics than to the one true God known in the person of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. For some, for our culture, politics has become our savior. It's our only hope. And now some on both sides will do whatever it takes to make sure that that side is in power because they believe that if that side doesn't win, then everything is lost and there is no hope. That's how you know that you believe one side is a savior when you think that without it, there is no hope. Like 20 years ago, we were united as a people because we were attacked from outside. Christian versus Muslim has now 20 years later become left versus right. Liberal versus conservative. And our culture exalts the voices that agree with either side, making them into heroes of biblical proportions, and then we demonize our enemies. Because what happens, the pattern is that if we truly believe that our political side is the savior, then it doesn't take long for the other side to become the devil. And that is what has started an ideological, cultural, religious war. To which version of the state will we give our allegiance? To which version of the state will we worship? And we know we're worshiping it, our true worship, when we think that that version of the state is our only hope. Y'all, when you see white supremacists storming the capital of a broken but great democracy, doing it in the name of God and carrying an American flag, wearing t-shirts that say six million Jews wasn't enough? I'm sorry. Our grandparents carried that American flag into Nazi Germany and into, into Europe to save the Jews. Not to say that six million wasn't enough. When you see someone carrying that flag and in the name of God saying six million Jews wasn't enough into the capital of a democracy, you know that the beast is back. And that same flag, it represents the right to speak and protest and act on injustice when we see it, on racial injustice when we see it, but it doesn't give us the right to burn down our cities. And the truth is these two extremes are getting all the airtime. And they're pulling more and more people in. All of this on both sides. When you see this playing out, that's how you know the beast is back. And it's drawing more and more people in. More and more people are giving it more and more money. More and more time. More and more energy. People are walking away from one another in hatred because we disagree about issues. This ideological war has broken relationships even within families. I mean, what else do we need to see to know that something's wrong? When we hate our own family because we disagree on issues. And now this ideological war is turning more and more violent. 
because misinformation and half-truths on both sides has convinced both sides that their side is fighting the righteous fight. That message comes to us through journalists and politicians. And we become blind to the fact that journalists and politicians are no longer fighting for truth and justice. They are now the priests and the false prophets of this cultural religion. And this cultural religion's false gospel is being preached on the pulpits of 24-hour news and social media every day, all day. And the sad truth is sometimes it's preached in the pulpits of our churches. But here is the truth. There is no political party or politician that is the savior. And there is no political party or politician that is the devil. At their best, they are tools that can be used by the savior to take on the suffering of others to honor and serve God. And at their worst, they are tools used by the dragon to inflict suffering, chaos, and dissension, destroying culture and lives. They are neither the dragon nor the lamb. They're nothing more than tools. And here's why this matters. Paul Minier says this, he says, to treat human enemies as ultimate enemies constitutes deception of the first order. We're being deceived and we have bought into a great lie that the other person on the other side is the evil one rather than acknowledging the biblical truth that true evil is attacking all of us. It's toying with all of us. It's messing with all of us. It's causing division and chaos by pushing us to extremes, by turning our attention away from God, by turning our attention away from itself, by causing us to believe that it's not even real. <laughs> and ultimately what it's done is divide us and set us against one another. One another. And John wrote this in part because he wanted his churches, he wanted us today to know that the real enemy back then wasn't the Roman. Even though it might have been a Roman that was harassing, even imprisoning and killing them. The real enemy wasn't the Roman. It was the power of evil in the world. And it was a power that even the Roman persecutors were victims of as well. That absolute power drove Nero crazy. He ended his own life. John, who wrote Revelation, the Apostle Paul, the early Christians, they knew this. And that's why as they were being persecuted and tortured and imprisoned for no reason, they evangelized and discipled their jailers. That's why when they were put on trial unfairly, they evangelized and discipled whatever government leader they had access to. That's why from the cross, Jesus himself said, Father, forgive them because they don't understand what they're doing. You see, Jesus wants us to know that we are all under attack, friends and enemies alike. And right now in the midst of all this, the world needs a Christian church that takes its mission more seriously than its politics. A church that will remember in the midst of all this noise that its purpose is to love God and love others. That its purpose, its mission, is to make disciples of Jesus, to love and make disciples 
as Jesus himself said, even of our own enemies. And throughout history, we've done this. And when the church has done this, the church has literally changed the world. When the church has put her head down and focused on being the hands and feet of Jesus, no matter who's in charge of the institutions here on earth, the church has radically transformed the world. That's the church that throughout history has created some of the finest art and music that we've ever experienced. That is the church that birthed scientific discovery, that built hospitals and schools, That fed the poor, clothed the naked, fought to free the unjustly imprisoned. And yes, even inspired political movements, but movements that were meant for the glory of God first. Along with the good of humanity. You see, we can disagree about policies. We should be able to. You know what? Because none of us is right 100% of the time. Do you know that? Do you know that I am not right 100% of the time. I really hate to admit that in front of you all. And if I could ask you to turn the mirror back on yourselves, you know that about yourself too. So it's okay that we disagree because there's a chance that we're wrong. So we can disagree and we can listen and we can do that in relationship. Because at the end of the day, we are all made in the same image of the almighty God and we are all here to love God and love others. To live above all else, not as beastly people, but as people of the Lamb, as citizens of the kingdom of God. And y'all, I'm telling you that that is a gift the church has for a world, especially at a time like this. To be a third voice, another voice, neither extreme right, not left, and not just something in the middle. But without sounding too pretentious, a voice that comes from above. A voice that listens to the truth of God and the person of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and shares that good news with the world. The truth that Jesus is king and we are his people. So I would pray that we would continue to be a people who would never say, go away Jesus, we got this. But instead that we would be a people who will say over and over again, Here I am, Lord. Send me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need need tools. We need to be equipped. We need courage and strength. We need to be reminded constantly of why we're here. That we are here to be a gift and an alternative to the noise and the chaos around us. So God, when that little beast within us is sparked and we start finding ourselves fighting, remind us to rely on you. Remember that you've already won the battle to trust you. And you've already won the war. To remember that we are a part of your people and that we are here to do your work, not the work of some earthly institution. So God, give us the courage and the strength to remember this, equip us to do it, and send us to be your people in the midst of the world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. 
Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at FPC underscore Kingwood. We'll see you next time.